The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Isaiah 53. Here is the, the basic outline that I see for this chapter. You start out with three verses where God's talking, and then the last two verses, God's talking. In the, in the middle, the prophet describes the servant's substitutionary suffering. And that's where we're going to start today. Um, in Isaiah 53.1, I'm going to just read these ten verses. So just follow along with me. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 1. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him, that is the arm of the Lord, who is a person, grew up before the Lord like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten of by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. If his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall See his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe of a God who loved us, and that love motivated you to send your Son to die the death that we should deserve, that we deserved, in order that we might live the life that. He secured. I pray that as we ponder the blows, the stripes, received for our transgressions, received for our iniquities, that we would stand in awe and be moved to deeper surrender and greater worship. greater boldness to share good news that the reigning God saves and satisfies believing sinners through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. 
Meet us this morning, I pray, in Jesus. Amen. Isaiah opens with a question, who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so my first question is, how do we understand this who? I always love when I jump ahead of my own slides. So this unit here has five little parts, and it's all centered on verses 4 through 6. What frames it is this statement that we're going to see here in verses 1 and 2, the servant's divine human nature and homeliness, followed by the servant's experience of suffering, the substitutionary nature of that suffering, the servant's humble response to his own suffering, and then the human and divine perspective on this suffering. So we start here. Who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, as you look at this passage, is, what do you see that might help us answer the identity of the who and the whom. Let your eyes wander up to verse 15. Let your eyes wander down into the following verses. The nations. For the nations, we read about them in verse 15. God wants through Christ, to sprinkle them, that is, cleanse them from their sins. Many nations, and yet, at the end of verse 15, what do we learn about them? That which was not told them, they see. That which they have not heard, they understand. Now, in verse 1, what we read is that the arm of the Lord was revealed to a group, and yet they didn't believe it. To the nations, it says, they never heard it, and yet they, they understand it. They never saw it, and yet now they see it. Isaiah doesn't make it explicit for us, but he goes on down. He uses this language of we and us, our Verse 4, he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. And we know that's broader than, for example, his people. But down in verse 8, he says explicitly, he was stricken for the transgression of my people. He became a curse under the Mosaic Covenant as the culmination of all of Israel's sins their exile was only a picture of the ultimate separation that Jesus undergoes at the cross on behalf of the Jews. So I'm, I'm wrestling with this, and then, then I find a little footnote in verse 1. Anybody see any footnote there? What does it say? Cited in John 12, 38, and where else? Romans 10.16. So, 
I want to go and check out John and Paul. So turn in your Bibles to those texts. You've got John 12. He's going to cite our passage. And you've got Romans. So we'll start out in John. John 12, 37 through 41. So though Jesus had done so many signs, John says, before the crowds ministering to the Israelites, they did not, they still did not believe in him. Why? So that the word of Isaiah could be fulfilled. Lord, who's believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? They could not believe, for again Isaiah said, this is Isaiah 6 now, he's blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn that I would heal them. And Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory. He saw his glory, the glory of Jesus, and spoke of him. So, within the context of John 12, who does he apply this verse, Isaiah 53, 1 to? Who's he talking about that all of Jesus' signs were done before them, yet they did not believe so that it would fulfill what the prophet Isaiah had declared? Who has believed what he heard from us? Answer, very few. Israelites. Let's go to Romans, Romans 10. Here we see Paul wrestling with two different groups. Romans 10. We're going to start with a quotation of Isaiah 52. We just covered this a couple weeks ago. Isaiah 52, 16. This is in the context of everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they call on Him if they've never heard? And how will they hear if no one tells them? And how will someone tell them if they've never been sent? How beautiful are the feet of Him, verse 16. How beautiful, or verse 15. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news, but they have not all obeyed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? Now listen to what Isaiah, where he goes after, where, where Paul goes after this. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have heard. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Citing Psalm 19.4. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Citing Deuteronomy 32. God wants to instill within His people who've made Him jealous. He's going to cause them to be jealous by Him directing His affections to someone who is not part of the Mosaic Covenant, namely the Gentiles. And He's going to stir jealousy within the Jews. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say... Isaiah 65, I've been found by those who did not seek me. That sounds like Isaiah 52, 15. I was found by by kings and other Gentiles, many nations who never had sought me in the beginning. 
I never disclosed myself to them. I have shown myself to those who did not ask of me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So he's contrasting those who never were given the book of Isaiah and who all of a sudden are celebrating the gospel versus those who were given the book of Isaiah. Good news came to them, yet they didn't hear it. They didn't receive it. We keep going in Isaiah 53. Who's believed what he heard from us? And that us there, I I think, is likely Isaiah and all other prophets who are speaking on behalf of God. Who's heard? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, we've covered this a lot. But by God's arm, He enters into the world as great Savior. He first did it at the, at the original Exodus. His strong arm delivered them. We read about this in texts like Isaiah 40. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for Him. Or Isaiah 52, 10, the Lord has barred His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations as it's envisioning this future day of hope when the curse will be destroyed, when sin will be addressed. Among all the nations, He's he's bared His holy arm and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of God. So this arm of God is a picture of his, His might, His strength, His salvation. And yet in this text... The arm of the Lord is a person. Look at it. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. The arm of the Lord is not just this um, portrayal of God as if he were a man of war. But the arm of the Lord is actually the instrument by which God enters into the world and becomes a man. So that that man can then grow up before the Lord. The arm of the Lord, the means by which God saves, the means by which He proves Himself mighty, is a person who in this chapter is going to suffer on behalf of the world. He grew up before Him. Who's the He? It's the arm of the Lord. This person is, I think, the child that we read about in 714. He'll be born of a virgin and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. So that when we see him, we see God. Or he'll be the child of Isaiah 9, 6, who has four names all grouped together, wonderful counselor, mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That built into his very character, into his identity, is the fact that he's connected with God himself. And here he's tagged the arm of the Lord, the very instrument of deliverance. That's what God's doing. He's entering into the world in order to save through this powerful figure who is, we now learn, quite homely. 
He's called here a young plant. Not much to it. Just came out of the ground. But a massive garden, a massive tree could all be sparked from this one little seed. If you remember in Isaiah chapter 6, it says, when Isaiah receives his mission, go out, here am I, send me, who will go for me? And he says, I'll do it, I'll do it. What do you want me to say? And he says, keep looking but don't see. Keep listening but don't hear. Lest you see with your eyes and hear with your ears and turn and be healed. So Isaiah's mission is one of judgment. And Jesus tells us that's why he teaches in parables. It's judgment. And only to his followers do they gain the secret of the interpretation. To the rest, he just speaks in parables without interpretation. And it's like the judgment of God coming on them. How long do I have to preach this way? And God says, the preaching will continue until the curse is accomplished. And he pictures Israel like a garden, a massive forest that he will come and and destroy. And only a tenth of the garden will be left. And then he'll, he'll burn it and destroy that one until all that's left is a single shoot. And it calls that shoot the holy stump. And from this tender, small stump, what do we learn? We learn that that's that's in Isaiah 6. When we get to Isaiah 11, it says, A shoot will grow out of the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? David's father. And it was to David, King David, that God promised, you're going to have an eternal throne. One of your sons is going to sit on a throne forever. And so out of this Jesse shoot will come, will rise. It's like a new garden, a garden of Eden, a return to paradise, a new creation. is all going to start with a single person. And in our text, it simply calls him a young plant. But when you see that plant rise on the third day, it was on the third day of the creation week that we first see plant life. It's the first visible evidence of new creation shooting out of the ground. And when you see it happen on the third day, you'll know that new creation is happening. This term for young plant shows up one other time in the book, and only one other time. The ESV translates it differently, so we would, all, we would miss the connection. And the ESV also, well, most people treat this as dealing with generalities. Let's read it. Isaiah 11, it says, The nursing child in that future day when the Spirit of the Lord comes on, This shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's how the chapter begins in Isaiah 11. A shoot will rise from the stump of Jesse, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a person, and he'll be a royal figure with the presence of God on him as if he's like a movable temple. Wherever he goes, God goes. And if you encounter him, you encounter the presence of God. And through him, he's going to work peace across the world. The lion will lay down with the lamb, and he's associated with the mountain of God, that is Zion, Jerusalem. That's where he will reign, and he'll work justice. 
That's what we learn in the first verses here. Verses 1 through 9 of chapter 11. Here's what we we get at the end. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now many just look at this and say, when that Messiah shows up, the servant king, when he shows up, peace is going to be established. There's going to be so much safety that even the smallest child will be able to play over the hole of a snake and not get bit. But there's more going on here. What's going on? Goes back to the garden and the serpent. I think so. So you've got these images of an adder's den and of a cobra, both of them images that take us all the way back to the devil being the serpent. In Isaiah 27, verse 1, the devil himself is called the serpent. That's how he's portrayed. Isaiah has this image, and the whole problem is that the world has been deeply overcome by the darkness that he has wrought. And into that darkness, Isaiah 9 says, this child's going to come. A light into the world. A child upon whom the government will rest and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That child now is talked about at the beginning of the chapter. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. And I think it's the same child now. It's that word nursing child that in Isaiah 53, 2 is translated tender shoot. And you'd never know it was the same. But in Isaiah 53, when it says, he will grow up before him like a young plant or a tender shoot, the imagery that it's drawing us back to is, is go back and think about the child. The child that I said would be born of the virgin whose name would be God with us. The child that I said would have four great names and be identified with God and all the government of the world would rest upon him. He would have all authority. The child, this isn't just any child. This is the child. The young, small, fresh fresh sign of a new creation child. This this little, fragile one in whom all the power of God is resting. That child is the one who will play over the hole of the cobra. In just the preceding verse, it talks about this child is the one who will lead the lion and the lamb that are side by side with no danger to that lamb. Perfect peace being led by a child. It's not just... I don't think a picture of the uh, ideal world where there is no fear. It's more than that. It's that right in the center of that ideal world where there is no fear, they're being led by a child king. And he's the one who's able to stand over the whole of the cobra. And the question throughout the rest of the book is, how will he triumph this way? Chapter 52, verse 13, opened with saying... He would be exalted over all. How will he triumph? And the question is, uh, this, this chapter is answering that he will only triumph through 
suffering, through tribulation. So he doesn't look like much. He's not only a young plant, he's like a root out of dry ground. So that was Isaiah 11, 8 and 9. Here's the frame, Isaiah 11, 1 and 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. It's talking about the person, the servant king. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. He's going to be like a banner, a giant lighthouse that's going to be drawing in the nations when he shows up to bring peace and justice and to overcome the serpent. And Paul cites that text, verse 10, in Romans 15, 12, and says, that's why I'm on a mission to the Gentiles. Because it's being fulfilled today. Jesus has come. He has done a work disarming the power of the serpent already. And even though he looks homely and small, a new creation has dawned in him. It's begun. He is the arm of the Lord. All the power of God wrapped up in a tender, small, young plant. Just a little child. All the power of God in him. And yet, the world looks at him and doesn't see it. He came to his own and his own did not recognize him. That's what we read next. He had no former majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3, his experience of suffering, he was despised. All the glory, all the beauty, all the power, all the worth of God bound up in this little child, and yet the world looked at him and just despised him. He was despised and rejected by men, A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This language here of being despised, we already saw in an earlier servant song. Remember, this book has four songs that are associated directly with a person that God calls his servant. And that's why I've called this Celebrating the Servant Savior, all these studies in Isaiah. He's the servant. Well, in Isaiah 49, the servant is addressed. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, His Holy One, to the one deeply despised. There's the same word we have in our passage. He's despised and abhorred by the nation. That's His people. And then there's a contrast. He's the servant of rulers. So he didn't just come to his nation, he came to many nations, says our passage. And then it says, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. And God addresses the servant right there. So if you look, let your eyes just wander up to the end of 52, verse 15, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. 
For that which has not been told them, now they have eyes to see. They have eyes to see the beauty, the greatness of who Jesus actually was. In the world's eyes, the cross is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This text says, His own nation despised Him, but the kings of the world out there leading Many nations in their train recognize He is the Lord. So there's a contrast between how His nation received Him and how others received Him. He was in the world and the world was made through Him. Yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own and His own people didn't receive Him. Yeah, the, so um, we have some kings and princes that do acknowledge him and some that don't. All our text says is that some will. Kings will, will do that. But then you've got, you also have world that, that doesn't acknowledge him. This, this is John 1. When we get to John 3, this same world, God loved the world. As a whole, humanity under sin, separated from God, and any, any who would believe in him wouldn't perish. And what we see is this explosion in the early church of more Gentiles than Jews acknowledging him. So his own people there, does that refer to the Jewish nation? Yes, I believe his own people in the second line does refer to the Jewish nation. So just a comment. We just saw how, how Christ would be so despised by, by his own nation, but also by many in the world would despise him. Mm -hmm. And it just causes me to think what a great salvation we have, that we aren't among those who despise him. Because by sheer mathematical odds, we would be among those who despise him. It sounds like it's, a, it's certainly a majority who despise him. So I just say... What a great salvation we have. Amen. What a great salvation we have. And if he can overcome our resistance to move us from being despisers to those who celebrate mercy, he can do it for loved ones as well. I'm, uh, you, you may have mentioned the, uh, God overpowering the serpent, but I'm kind of struck So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. 
not an intentional, I think of like the new atheism today. And I'm, I'm trying to ask what God, what may God be doing with the disbelief of people today? That the one who is doing this here is God himself. That their disbelief is God's work so that The question at the core of what you just asked was, what might God be doing? And we don't know all things that he's doing, but we do know some. So let me just build off that very quickly. Turn in your Bibles to Romans, Romans chapter 11. We've looked at, the, at these texts before, but, but I think it, it, it helpful for us to um, recall. Romans 11, we're going to start in verse 7. Remember what Brother Rick just drew attention to was... Though Jesus had done so many signs among them, they did not believe so that the Scripture might be fulfilled in Isaiah. That their lack of belief, according to John, certainly they're accountable for that. But the decisive, the decisive reason that they did not believe was because God had not yet overcome their resistance so that he could fulfill what he calls a prophecy in Isaiah 5.53.1. That God was actually at work in their unbelief. Why is the question, would God do such a thing? First of all, just to confirm, God was at work and he is at work in unbelief. Look at Isaiah, sorry, Romans 11, 7 and 8. What then? Israel, that's what we're talking about, Isaiah's original audience. Israel, Jesus' audience, failed to obtain what it was seeking. Life, righteousness, do this and live. The promise was there. But Paul says in Romans 7, 10, the promise, the, the commandment that promised life to me ultimately brought me death. They were seeking life, but they failed to obtain it. Now, the elect obtained it. There is a remnant, people like Isaiah. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. It doesn't say they were hard. They were hardened. That means there's an agent that brought the hardening. Then we say, then he says, as it is written, and then he quotes Isaiah 29, verse 10. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. That the, the blindness and hardness that God brought on Israel, and we say, why would He do such a thing? Well, one thing to keep in mind, Romans chapter 1. In the midst of their hardness, 
God gave them over to their debased mind. He gave them over to their sexual immorality. He gave them over to what they wanted. They became what they worshipped, and God gave them over to it. That is, sin is not only worthy of judgment, sin itself is judgment. And if we find ourselves living in sin, we should be scared. Because it's not only something that is bringing about future judgment, as if, well, I don't need to think about that, but the fact is, we might be living in the midst of judgment. Because the power of God has brought, has moved us, given us over to the sin of our own hearts. And it should move us even, even now to be pleading, God, get me out of this. Get me out of my rebellion. Get me out of my hard-heartedness. Move me to have a soft heart, a gentle and quiet spirit. Move me, God. Help me. I don't want to be under judgment. So why would God do this? Romans 9 22. Turn there, please. Romans 9, 22. What if God, who's just been called the potter, and we're the clay, and He has the right as the potter to make, out of, to make His clay into what He will, some for noble purposes and some for ignoble. What if God, desiring to show His wrath, Oh, to make known, to disclose who He actually is in His character. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, endured with much patience vessels of wrath? In one breath, He's enduring their sinfulness. In another breath, He's bringing about their sinfulness, giving them over. To the ugliness of their soul. That's where they want to be. And he just lets them keep going. And he he pushes them in it. He's in charge of this. And, And he does it because of something in his being as God that is proper and right to disclose all of who he is to those whom he loves. That it is proper for an eternal an eternally glorious being to actually let those he loves delight in all that he is, not withholding any part of himself from them, but to actually let us taste and see who he is in all of his bigness. And without a world filled with sin, there's parts of God's character that we would not see as beautifully. So what if God, desiring to show His wrath, where does His wrath show up if there is no sin to be judged? What if God, desiring to show His wrath, to make known His power, the fact that He is strong, that He is able to deliver and help and overcome all enemy hostility? What if God, desiring to to display His wrath and His power, has as the potter created vessels that he purposes for wrath. And he is patient with them. Rather than wiping them out, he he lets it extend the wrath and the rebellion over centuries. To what end? In order, verse 23, this is what it's all about. In order to make known 
the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy. This gets back to what John was saying. Oh, this... That we could just pause and just be amazed by the fact that mercy's reached us. That it could actually move us. That, that God, that we would look at a vast world with thousands of years of rebellion since the days of Adam and to say, why am I not there? Why am I, why did he, why did he make, choose to make me a vessel for mercy rather than a vessel for wrath. And there is the whole point of Romans 9 is to say it it had nothing to do with you. Had nothing to do with me. Before they were born, before they had done either good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. It has nothing to do with us. to see and ears to hear the message from God. 
the image I have right now in my head is, is that until the fire comes, the clay is still soft. And at any point, a vessel that was shaped for lower purposes could just be crushed and reworked into something beautiful. Pray with me. Father, there are individuals in here who have unbelieving loved ones in their minds. And there's some who have professed belief, whose hearts have grown cold. Potentially, uh, marriages that have struggled because of hardness. And I pray that you, the potter, in your mercy, would, would move us, recognizing the, the significance of unbelief. Um, you alone are the one who can overcome it. And when faced with it, looking at sinfulness and proneness to wander, our hearts can grieve. And I pray that it would move us to deep humility, recognizing that You were the decisive mover in shaping our own hearts to be soft, in making us to be those who celebrate you, and you alone are the decisive mover who can reshape wet clay into something beautiful. And Lord, as long as the fire hasn't come, I, 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 my heart just grieves thinking about my cousin. She just went into the oven. And, uh, and that's so serious. But there's others for whom, that, that others that we love, maybe even some in this room, who have not reached the heat yet. And because of that, they are still shapeable. And we would pray by your mercy that you, the potter, might in your good and pleasing purposes choose to turn from wrath, and express mercy, all because of what Christ has done. But we, we also testify that we don't know all that you're doing, and we want to have hearts that are surrendered to your sovereignty, recognizing that you're the one who chooses to make us small. You don't ask us for counsel, and you are working good, and we want to be a people that can celebrate all of your good purposes, and we want to glory in the riches of your mercy. Without pride, without any arrogant self-boasting. Thank you for reminders of the power of the good news to reshape us and to shape others. Make it happen in Christ, I pray. Amen.
they do? Why won't you harden? Why won't you soften? It's, it's, that's beautiful. It's so important to remember that God's love, John 3, 16 love, it doesn't say um, God sent his son so that he could love. It says God loved so he sent his son. That that love was for the whole world, providing an opportunity for any, for any who would come to him, who would believe to be delivered that, that's that, that love of our God that is, is pushing him to say, I don't delight in the death of the wicked. And he supplies his son as the only means, but the real means for any who would come. It's a great reminder. Thank you. And in all of this, we need to keep in perspective God's plan right from the very beginning. Abraham and through Abraham, uh, his descendants to be a special people who became proud and boastful and thought they were God's people because of the way they lived. And it was that that was that he judged them with blindness so that the gospel could spread out beyond them to the rest of the world. Thank you. Just looking at the rest of verse 3, wrapping it up here. This one who is the very arm of God was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The language here is a man of pain and a man of suffering. And when we look at the life of Christ, that's the one that we see. Sorrowing, grieving, in such a way that men would hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Jesus, in his movement toward Jerusalem, testifies to his disciples that he must suffer there many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day rise. In the garden of Gethsemane, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and and watch with me, he pleads with his disciples. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he said, My father, if it's possible, let this cup of wrath pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the only one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Christ was man and Christ was God. He he came as something small, not looking like a massive oak, looking much more like an acorn. And yet having, having no, the, the world looking at him, having no real sense for, for all the power that was packed in him and all the love that he was being motivated by. So that he was despised and rejected. Verses 4 through 6, we'll look at those next week. He's, he's going to, it's all for us. It's all for us. He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And verses 4 through 6, we're just going to get to the heart of this this whole concept of substitutionary atonement. Being made right with God through what Jesus did. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are our help. Thank you for this book that's able to minister and guide And give hope because when we're weak, you can prove yourself strong. I pray that our faith would be put in you. You are not one who delights in the strength of the horse or in the legs of a man, but you take pleasure in those who fear you, in those who hope in your steadfast love. May all of us in this room be among them. Overcome the resistance in our own souls and let us entrust the hardness in others' souls to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.